the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Michael Gillen. He is the author of The Null Prophecy. He's a, an Emmy award-winning journalist. He's a PhD in physics. Uh, he's a best-selling author. I don't know how he has time to talk with us today, but we're going to talk about this fast-paced thriller that is written for a, a, a believing audience. It's really f- quite fascinating. I've never read anything quite like it. Perhaps you have, but I have not. He'll join us Later this hour, we're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Nick Loris. He's the uh, Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Market and Regulatory Reform. We're going to talk about that uh, New York Times leaked draft report. They said that they uh, leaked this report. They obtained it. And uh, we're going to try to put some perspective on what the report is about and whether or not this was, in, in fact, something the. Uh, Trump administration was trying to withhold from the public, as the New York Times alleged. By the way, they have since retracted uh, that uh, that story and the statement surrounding it. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Schumacher. He uh, is here to talk about the men's roundup that's starting on September 8th. It's a great opportunity uh, for men. I've been to the female equivalent of the men's roundup, and what a tremendous opportunity for men to come together around God's word. And we'll talk more about that opportunity when he joins us at the bottom of the five o'clock hour. So I hope you will uh, will join us then. Well, certainly the top news story has to do with the United States and its standoff with North Korea. Now, there's nothing new about the fact that there's a standoff between the two countries, but it has escalated to a level we have not seen in recent days. President Trump issued an extraordinary ultimatum to North Korea on Tuesday. He warned Pyongyang not to make any more threats against the United States, or they will, and I quote, face fire and fury like the world has never seen. This was during a photo op at the National Golf Club in Bedminster, um, New Jersey. North Korea responded, uh, saying it is carefully examining plans to attack Guam with medium to long range ballistic missiles, state run media reported on Wednesday. And the percentage of Americans viewing North Korea as a threat has jumped from 55 percent, rightly, to 75 percent in two years. And by the way, that was before this recent exchange. We're going to talk a bit about uh, what went uh, went down today between the president and his administration, trying to clarify what the uh, president meant well, when he issued his strongest warning yet to North Korea after published reports that the communist dictatorship had developed a nuclear warhead. And it's not altogether clear if that is an analysis or it is uh, known information. We suspect they have uh, nuclear weapons and the number of nuclear weapons they have developed in a miniaturized uh, form. It's not altogether clear if that is a certainty or a speculation. It's an informed speculation, if that's what it is. But uh, North Korea um, best not make any more threats to the United States, he said. And again, at the uh, New Jersey Golf Club, uh, Trump's remarks came at about 355 
um, uh, in uh, which he discussed the the opioid drug crisis. That was a subject of the conference that he was involved in. Uh, he warned his warning rather came after the Defense Intelligence Agency determined that North Korea had produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead, according to a report by The Washington Post. The Post's account said the communist regime had not yet tested the capability. Well, experts contend no good solutions exist for responding to the nuclear threat posed by Kim, but not everyone's willing to accept that uh, rather dire um, uh, assessment. The United Nations Security Council unanimously approved new sanctions with the rare support of Russia and China just days before to ban coal and other exports to North Korea valued at more than a billion dollars. North Korea's state-run central news agency called the sanctions a violent infringement of its sovereignty. It added, we will make the U.S. pay by a thousand fold for all the heinous crimes it commits against the state and the people of this country. Bruce Klingner, a senior research fellow in, on Northeast Asia, said uh, preemptive military action against North Korea carries big risks, and that's an understatement. In a prepared statement, he uh, said the Washington Post's report on North Korea's nuclear warhead for its intercontinental ballistic missile, we should not be surprised by today's report. When I was at the CIA, we produced an unclassified estimated in uh, 1999 that predicted North Korea would be able to threaten the continental U.S. with a nuclear-tipped missile by 2015. We may have been off a few years, but it is not unexpected. Previously, four U.S. four-star generals said they assume or have to assume for planning purposes that North Korea has the ability to hit the U.S. with nuclear weapons. So while this may be news to most of us, it's not news to those who are in positions of power and authority in the United States. Uh, Klinger also was critical of the president's words to reporters, saying that President Trump's comments sound as if they were penned by Pyongyang. His statement was unhelpful and will affirm growing perceptions that the United States is considering a preventative military attack against North Korea. Statements by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and National Security Advisor McMaster indicate that military options are on the table if North Korea reaches a technical level deemed dangerous, and Trump has asked the military to prepare a preventative attack option. But Secretary of Defense James Mattis warned off the catastrophic consequences of such an attack. Well, that's uh, a summation of what went on um, over the last uh, few hours. Well, the State Department today insisted that the president and his cabinet secretaries are in agreement about how to deal with North Korea a day after the president warned it would face fire and fury from the United States. The United States is on the same page. That's a quote from the State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauer. Uh, She said during a briefing with reporters, whether it's the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defense, we are speaking with one voice and the world is, in fact, speaking with one voice. Well, tensions have escalated with North Korea over the last several days, as I've mentioned. Hours after Trump's comments, state media of North Korea reported that its leaders were seriously considering their plan with Guam in their sights. Now we're speaking on behalf of the White House, said the administration is unified over the pressure campaign that's uh, backed by many other nations to deal with North Korea diplomatically. Those are alarming actions, uh, she went on to say. Uh, of Kim Jong-un's regime, their provocative actions on the part of North Korea. Speaking of Trump's comments, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said today that Chief of Staff John Kelly and members of the National Security Council were aware of the tone of the statement of the president prior to delivery. The words were his own, she said. The tone and strength of the message was discussed beforehand. Earlier in the day, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, he issued a warning to North Korea in a fiery statement of his own. He said the DPRK, referring to the Democratic um, 
People's Republic of Korea, that's North Korea, regime's actions will continue to be grossly overmatched by ours and would lose any arms race or conflict it initiates. Uh, Earlier in the day, Trump said on Twitter that the United States nuclear arsenal is stronger than ever before. I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, But nonetheless, it's important to remember that everything President Trump says, and for that matter, his cabinet, and everything we're doing strategically is aimed at China. North Korea is China's pawn, if you will, and Beijing's uh, play to divert attention from trade battles with the Trump administration should be taken into consideration. So while the words are directed at North Korea, the impact very likely is intended for China, who uh, that desperately uh, does not want a war on its border um, or conflict that would send uh, refugees streaming from North Korea into China. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about what a U.S. nuclear strike on North Korea would look like. I thought it was interesting, the Washington Examiner speculating a bit on that. Also, we'll talk about the fact that North Korea is strengthening its ties with Iran. Tehran and Pyongyang have a common enemy. We'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Michael Gillian. He's the... Uh, uh, Dr. Gillian is the author of The Null Prophecy. It's a work of fiction, but it really reflects much of what's, uh, what's in today's headlines. Well, responding to new U.N. sanctions, North Korea threatened a nuclear attack on the United States. Speaking at the uh, Asian Summit in Manila, that's A-S-E-A-N, North Korea's uh, foreign ministry spoke of intercontinental attack capabilities that meant his nation could reach the United States, a severe lesson with its nuclear strategic force. Doubling down, North Korea's state news agency suggested that there's no bigger mistake than the United States believing that its land is safe across the ocean, end quote. Well, in the context of North Korea's advancing intercontinental ballistic missile program, these threats cannot be ignored. The Washington Examiner points out that North Korean officials would be well to remind themselves of the nuclear threat they currently face should they choose to act on the threats that they have been making under the military's nuclear attack base plan, OPLAN 8010. um, The SSBNS stand ready to launch their Trident D5 ballistic missiles at either preselected or actively chosen targets. Regardless of uh, the um, SSBNs represent the uh, pinnacle of warfighting lethality with each armed with 24 missiles and at least eight independent nuclear warheads per missile. One U.S. Ohio class submarine carries at least 192 nuclear warheads varying between yields of 100 to 475 kilotons. Um, As the uh, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists blog noted in March, these missiles possess exponentially accurate uh, targeting systems. Uh, This reality is one North Korean leaders have to constantly bear in mind. After all, were North Korea prepared and uh, preparing a nuclear strike in the United States homeland or a territory such as Guam, the response would be swift and overwhelming, which is uh, what the president rather inartfully was saying on Monday when he responded to the latest a series of threats. In that scenario, the U.S. would likely launch a preemptive decapitation strike of Kim Jong-un's regime. What would that mean? Well, uh, consider the uh, the uh, the ramifications of such a uh, serious uh, strike. Uh, were North Korea, if a uh, nuclear attack looming, uh, were looming, the United States military would almost certainly recommend Trump to authorize uh, three-plus strikes on each major command control target. And depending on U.S. concerns about civilian casualties and the imminence of the threat, 
That might include multiple strikes on Pyongyang itself, missile launch sites, carriers, warheads, silos would also definitely be targeted in such an event. Now, of course, the goal is to avoid anything approaching this, but putting in the context from the North Korean perspective, a response from the United States, if they were to launch, if North Korea was to launch a nuclear missile, would be devastating. This is what Senator Lindsey Graham was talking about when he recently described destroying North Korea itself. That would be the result. And although diplomacy should be the absolute priority in addressing Kim Jong-un's ballistic missile program, he should have no illusion the nuclear threat game that he engaged, um, that he uh, is engaged in, is not one that would uh, end well for him if the threats were uh, carried out. So it's in that context that the threats, the idle threats up to this point, have been and are being made, and one would hope that would be a part of his uh, uh, calculation in determining whether or not to respond to the words that he himself has made, sometimes in response to the U.S. Um, its sanctions or words made by the president, but always North Korea saber-rattling, and that has been the case over the last three administrations prior to this one. Another consideration, North Korea's provocative actions and belligerent rhetoric directed at the United States come at a time when the Stalinist regime is strengthening ties with another government hostile toward the U.S., building on decades of missile and nuclear program collaboration. Pyongyang's second most senior leader, Kim Jong-nam, Attended re-election, uh, attended re-elected president, Iranian President Hassan Rousani's uh, inauguration uh, ceremony at the weekend. And at meetings with senior Iranian officials, the two regimes praised each other for standing up to the United States. They share a common enemy. North Korea also inaugurated a new embassy in Tehran. The Trump administration has been urging countries to downgrade or suspend their diplomatic ties with the country over its missile launches. That has not certainly been the case in Iran. It is um, in its account of a meeting between Kim and the parliamentary speaker, Ali Larjani, uh, the mayor news agency quoted Larjani as saying North Korea had shown praiseworthy resistance against U.S. bullying. The North Korean official, who is chairman of the Supreme Assembly of North Korea, had in turn declared that Tehran and Pyongyang have a common enemy. Kim also backed Iran's right to launch ballistic missiles in the face of Western criticism. The Islamic Republic of Iran has stated that no authorization is required for the building or firing of missiles, and we support this strong position. Uh, the news agency quoted Kim as having said, he said, North Korea will not abandon its national interests and urge the U.S. to stop its hostile policies to North Korea. He underlined the countries um, uh, that countries make their own destiny by relying on their power and no state should surrender to excessive powers because it has been proven that the United States has invaded countries that are weak in terms of military power. Time and date will pass and change, but our common enemy will not change at all. And the United States continues to. It's bullying policies, it quoted him as saying. Well, Kim called for a deepening of relations with Iran to serve both countries' interests. And when he met with Kim, Rouhani said Iran's uh, excellent ties with North Korea would continue, adding that all nations should be treated with respect and that interference in our country's internal affairs was wrong. The inauguration of Pyongyang's new embassy in Iran was attended by North Korea's vice foreign ministry, minister rather, an Iranian vice foreign minister, according to a report from North Korea's um, uh, news source. Uh, one, in a speech, extolled strategic relations between the two government leaders in their common struggle for independence against imperialism. When his remarks uh, he said the Iranian people remember North Korea's sincere help and solidarity when Iran faced hard times and would in turn fully support the struggle of the Korean people at all times. 
Well, Iran and North Korea, as you know, have both drawn condemnation for their ballistic missile programs and tests. The two have been collaborating in missile development since uh, the early 1990s, and experts from each country have observed missile launches in the other. And weapons specialists have long reported on similarities between Iranian and North Korean ballistic missiles. Among individuals targeted in the U.S. sanctions for their role in ballistic missile procurement for Iran is an Iranian who the U.S. Treasury Department has linked to shipments from North Korea of equipment suitable for use in ground testing of liquid propellant ballistic missiles and space launch vehicles. In 2011, a report by a U.N. panel on North Korea raised concerns about Iran-North Korean missile cooperation that would violate multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions. Prohibited ballistic missile-related items are suspected to have been transferred between the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and the Islamic Republic of Iran on regular scheduled flights of North Korean flag carrier Air Koryoa and Iran Air and with a transshipment through a neighboring third country, the report said. The third country was said by diplomats to be, uh, at the time, China, which sought to block release of the U.N. report. In 2015, the exiled opposition National Council of Resistance of Iran claimed that North Korean nuclear warhead experts were secretly visiting Iran, perhaps not so secretly, and that Iranian officials involved in nuclear and missile related activities were also visiting North Korea regularly. Another report last June claimed that Iran has established missile facilities based in North Korean models, rather based on North Korean models, with the help of visiting North Korean experts. These North Korean experts uh, who were sent to Iran trained the main Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, missiles experts uh, in IRGC garrisons, including uh, one situated southwest of Tehran, the report says. Well, it goes on from there. Um, the annual assessment of worldwide threats, the intelligence community told U.S. Uh, lawmakers last May that North Korea's Export of ballistic missiles and associated materials to several countries, including Iran, but not limited to, uh, was an illusion, or rather an illustration of its willingness to proliferate dangerous technologies. And so the concern reaches beyond just North Korea, but to its uh, longtime friend now, uh, Iran, as well. We'll continue to follow the story. It certainly gives one pause and reason uh, to drop to one's knees and pray for wisdom for those who are making decisions on behalf of the U.S. government about how to respond to North Korea, as well as to pray that God would intervene even in the heart of a man who um, has no claim to faith. So we do have uh, least access to the throne of, of grace and uh, prayer at this point is, uh, I would say, highly recommended. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with um, the author of The Null Prophecy, a fascinating, fast-paced thriller that's written specifically for a Christian audience. So we'll, uh, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Gillen in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Now, consider this scenario. Space weather scientists in northwest or northeast Canada have spotted holes opening in the Earth's magnetic sphere. Now, a massive, deadly eruption of solar radiation is barreling toward the planet at one million miles per hour with only three days before impact. The president of the United States desperately turns to two unlikely heroes for help. And as they and the world focus on the looming disaster from space, someone is secretly plotting to wreak havoc globally on the ground. If successful, this plan would hurl modern civilization back to the 19th century. 
My next guest, he skillfully weaves heart-racing suspense with deeper questions about the profound consequences of scientific innovation, both intended and unintended. As his heroes search for answers, they run headlong into questions about human origins and the meaning and purpose of life and death. My guest, uh, Dr. Michael Gillen, was born in East Los Angeles, earned his B.S. from UCLA and his M.S. and Ph.D. from Cornell University in physics, mathematics and astronomy. For eight years, he was an award-winning physics instructor at Harvard University. For 14 years, he was the Emmy award-winning science correspondent for ABC News, appearing regularly on Good Morning America, 2020, Nightline and uh, World News Tonight. Dr. Gillen is the host of the History Channel series, Where Did It Come From?, and producer of the award-winning family movie, Little Red Wagon. He's also president and CEO of Spectacular Science Productions, a sought-after public speaker, and the best-selling author of several books, including two critically acclaimed books for the general public about mathematics, Bridges to Infinity, and Five Equations That Changed the World. He joins us today to talk about his latest work of fiction. It's simply titled The Null Prophecy. Dr. Gillen, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Georgine. Well, it's a, a real honor, and thank you, and thank you for that very generous introduction. I feel I should run for office now. <laughs> well, <laughs> the state of politics, I, I don't think I'll want to. <laughs> yeah, not too favorable at this time. <laughs> no, no, ma'am. I, I think I'm going to stick to writing books. <laughs> this is such an interesting book. I, I've never read anything quite like it. It reflects today's headlines, but also forecasts what could happen and challenges us to think more deeply about scientific innovation, while not uh, suggesting that we abandon science, but helping us to put it in its rightful perspective. Yes, that is definitely one of the themes, uh, Georgine, and it's something that's near and dear to my heart, because as you indicated in your introduction, I'm a theoretical physicist by training, uh, and so I I have an inside look at um, what science has achieved, what science hopes to achieve. And it's a mixed bag, unfortunately. Um, If science set out and uh, tries every day to make a better life for us, Um, you know, it's uh, the scientists work daily to try to improve the quality of our lives through inventing vaccines, through, you know, better forms of transportation and so forth. Uh, And one of my characters in the null prophecy, in fact, does just that. He invents a vehicle uh, which he hopes will change the way we uh, travel long distances forever. But what what we now witness, of course, is that the uh, kind of the utopian dream uh, that has been promoted by scientists and uh, um, that scientists have tried to pursue over the uh, over the centuries has not turned out at all the way we'd hoped. Um, so, for example, you have something like antibiotics. Well, that was an invention of science that was meant to help uh, fight infections and so forth. And, you know, like most people, if I get an infection and it's, and it's severe enough, the doctor will prescribe antibiotics and seven or seven to ten days later, you know, I'm feeling much better. So hoorah for science. And science has to be given credit for that. But at the same time, there are these unintended consequences that are absolutely disastrous because we now know that one of the spinoffs of, of the, our use of antibiotics is the, uh, the, uh, uh, rise of superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. And so now we're faced with the prospect of uh, superbugs that could really take down an, a large part of the population. And that's not idle speculation. I mean, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. And Right? I mean, you know there are people in hospitals this very minute, perhaps even listening to this program, 
who know exactly what I'm talking about, where the doctor has exhausted all possible antibiotics and uh, the, the person faces a, a terrible prognosis. So the, the book, uh, The Null Prophecy, deals with this aspect, this kind of unintended aspect of, of science, among other things. Uh, you know, the, uh, I have two protagonists. The female is a baby Christian. So she's a woman of faith. And the other gentleman, he's a, a hardcore secular. So they're, they're attracted to one another romantically, but at the same time, they're divided by this difference in worldview. And the question is, can they get their act together to save the world? Well, and it raises profound questions about whether or not our scientific and technological process, uh, progress moves at a faster pace than ethicists, philosophers, and theologians uh, can uh, think through and address the the potential downside, the unintended consequences that often follow that scientific progress. I think so, uh, Georgine. And, you know, we're, uh, just recently, I think just this week, in fact, uh, there was a story, a news story, about how the uh, FDA, the Federal, uh, the uh, Food and Drug Association, is cracking down on the scientists to develop the technique for uh, creating a baby with three parents. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that sounds like something out of science fiction, but it isn't. Uh, you know, the, the, the scientists, in fact, found a way to do that. And, and But the FDA is cracking down on him precisely for the reason you just gave. We haven't even given thought. What, what could be the consequences of that? What, 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 think of a, a child who has three, three biological parents. I'm not talking about an adopted child. I'm talking about a child whose who's very DNA, whose genetic makeup is the result of three parents. We, we have to stop and think about these things. We can't just do them because we can do them. We have to ask ourselves, should we do these things? And I, I, you know, I have a teenage son, and I, I tell him, I said, you know, Bubba, you know, you're gonna, your generation is going to have to deal with a lot of this stuff. I think I'm, even in my, I'm a baby boomer, and I, I'm, you know, we're having to deal with this now. But when I look ahead just 10, 20, 30 years, wow, the ethical issues, mm-hmm. the scientific progress, so-called progress is raising is mind-boggling, Georgine. Yeah. Now, and you're, I should mention that your book is not anti-science, but it does encourage us no. to to maybe step back from our arrogance that we can, in fact, um, uh, prophesy a better future through through science uh, without considering our own limitations and the prospect of unintended consequences that have to be anticipated as well. Absolutely. Look, my my mom was diagnosed with uh, some years ago was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and uh, because of modern scientific medicine, she was kept alive for five years. I had her, you know, for five years, and I. My gosh, I'm deeply indebted to science for giving her to me for, for to our family for, for that long time. But at the same time, we now face a situation where um, uh, we have a phenomenon called iatrogenesis. Iatrogenesis, it's a long word. But it basically means that it's death by technology, death by medical technology. In other words, our medical technology can, can help people like my mom stay alive longer than they normally would. But at the same time, here comes the double-edged sword again. The unintended consequences is that it creates complications that wouldn't exist without the technology, and it's now become the, the third leading cause of death after cancer and heart disease. Mm. So th- this is literally death by uh, medical technology. So in other words, in those cases, the third leading cause of death is now that the cure is worse than the disease. You go in uh, expecting to get treated, 
the treatment commences and the treatment ends up killing you. So this, this no, it's not anti-scientific. How can it be anti-scientific? I'm a scientist. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have devoted my entire life to science. If, if I were anti-science, it would be I would be discrediting my whole existence, basically. <laughs> but uh, but no, I want people not to deify science. I want people to appreciate what science can do. Look, I'm old enough to remember, and I was a wee little child, okay, but I'm old enough to remember when uh, science put a man on the moon. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I remember all the kids in the neighborhood gathered in front of a TV set, and I remember sitting on the floor and watching this. It's just mesmerizing that you can lay in the setting foot on a foreign body on, a, on, a, on, a, on the moon. So science is capable of tremendous things, and it inspires our imagination, but I don't want people to deify it. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the fascinating book, The Null Prophecy. In fact, we'll talk about that name when we return as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Dr. Michael Gillian is my guest, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the pursuit of scientific truth, Emmy Award-winning physicist and author Michael Gillian, uh, Dr. Gillian, um, provides a reasoned and scientific analysis of claims made surrounding the contentious climate change debate and other scientific issues. He warns that we're not far from a time where humans can bring on their own man-made apocalypse in the name of environmental justice. In The Null Prophecy, who portrays future realities in a way no other book has. The Null Prophecy is a must-read thriller for Christian readers who want to understand the perils and pitfalls of humans' relentless attempts to play God. Well, let me ask you about the title of the book. It's a phrase, the null prophecy um, is a phrase uh, that's used in science, or at least the null result is a phrase used in science uh, that sort of explains the, the, the plot of the book. Can can you tell us a bit about the null result? Yes, absolutely. Uh, You're right. The, the title of the novel, the null prophecy is inspired from a phrase that we use in science called the null result. What that means is that there are, there are often times uh, when we set about to do an experiment, um, and uh, the result of the experiment is pretty widely anticipated. In other words, you're just kind of going through the motions. You kind of everybody kind of knows how the experiment's going to come out, but you have to do it anyway just to document it. Um, and sometimes, indeed, it turns out exactly as you expected. But every now and again, it doesn't. And when it doesn't, when you don't get the result everybody expected, that's called the null result. And so in the book, things go wrong, as you indicated at the top of the segment. Many, many things go wrong. Uh, in other words, they don't turn out the way people expected. And so then the question becomes, and, the, and one of the questions that this novel poses is, when things go wrong, when they don't turn out the way everybody expected, um, is it just a matter of bad luck, or is it a matter of that it was meant to be? And through my two characters, uh, Ali Armendaris, who's a Harvard physicist turned television correspondent, it's kind of based on my own life. She's a baby Christian. As a woman of faith, she's inclined to think when everything is going wrong, when things are not going as expected, she, she's looking for meaning in those unexpected consequences and those unexpected developments. Whereas Calder Sinclair, who's the inventor and the, and the, uh, and the atheist, who's very angry at God, and for good reason, uh, he thinks it's just nothing but bad luck. And so that creates tension between the two characters as everything is falling apart, as, as, as the world is kind of barreling towards uh, real peril. 
Uh, these two characters see what's happening in a very different way. So it's fascinating. And by the way, I, I give Calder uh, very strong props. I give Allie mm-hmm. strong So it's not as if I'm favoring one character or the other. I give them both. You know, they, they take good shots at each other. They give as good as they get. Yeah, it's more of a real-life relationship than one that's uh, created to, to make a point that, that favors one over the other. One of the, the things yeah. that I appreciated about the book was you um, point out that science and Christianity have some similarities in terms of worldview or the view of reality, uh, universal truth, that time is linear, that um, uh, significant parts of reality are hidden from us. What, what should we make of those similarities as we uh, assess the, the value of scientific innovation and try to put it in its proper place without deifying it? Well, I, I think the first thing is uh, keep science in perspective. Um, it can do great things, but it can also uh, create great peril. And so we need to be aware of that. And then the question arises, is there a reason for that? Is there, is there a reason it's turning out that way? And, and the question arises, what's going to win out, the intended good consequences or the intended bad consequences? And as you're contemplating that kind of war between the unintended consequences and the intended consequences of science, are you going to are you going to evaluate that war as strictly a person of logic? In other words, you're going to just strictly uh, 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 limit yourself to being logical, or are you going to be a person who sees things both uh, logically and as a person of faith? And uh, so this is this is central to the book because. The decision you make, the decision as to whether I'm going to approach this dilemma or approach this kind of uh, war, um, is whether I'm going to approach it strictly as a person of logic or as a person of logic and faith, or, quite frankly, you can approach it just as a person of faith and disparage logic, which I don't recommend. Mm-hmm. What I recommend, and, and I, it kind of comes out in the kind of back and forth between Allie and Calder, is that they both have something to contribute this man of just reason and this woman of reason and faith, as they're as they're duking it out, and as the world is you know tumbling towards the uh, towards a, a disastrous end, then uh, what what comes out? I hope the reader will take away is my recommendation is to view things, view life, your own personal life, the life of our country, the life of the planet, the life of our species, um, to look at it as a person both of reason and faith. I think that you, you miss something if you only lean on one or the other. That's my main takeaway. I should also point out for uh, listeners who haven't had the opportunity to start reading uh, the, uh, uh, the Null Prophecy that in addition to communicating some very meaningful and thought-provoking scenarios, it's also highly entertaining. It's fast-moving. It's thrilling. Um, I had to stop and really think about some, as I'm reading through some plot twist, uh, think about things that I had never considered, that I didn't know about. And so it kept me riveted, and I think people will enjoy that aspect of it, too. For me, that's the best kind of reading, where you're not only entertained and you're challenged, but you really are, are uh, thinking deeply about things that matter. And uh, that certainly is the case with The Null Prophecy. Well, thank you, Georgine. I mean, I, I, and I think that's a fair assessment of the book. But my wife is the reader in the family, okay? I'm going to just confess that to you. <laughs> she, she goes through books like unbelievable. I mean, I just, I'm in awe of her. 
and she's always been a voracious reader. I'm the kind of guy, I'm probably, you know, just an ordinary guy who, um, you know, at the end of a long day, I'll sit up in bed, and I'll have a book on my nightstand, and I'll pick up where I left off the night before, and, you know, I'll maybe make it through a chapter or two, and then I start knocking off. <laughs> so when I decided to write the Null Prophecy, I made a commitment to myself that I would write a book that would keep guys like me awake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was my first, I mean, I just, I, you know, I write relatively short chapters. They're very, as you say, action-packed, and they always end with a little cliffhanger. There are a million plot twists, so you can't really figure out, you know, what the ending is going to be. Uh, I have, besides Alien Calder, I have many supporting characters, and they're situated all over the world, and they're each going through their own uh, crises as the world itself is going through a crisis. So um, I think your your description is a very fair one, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you for pointing that out. Yes, it's on one level very entertaining, but on the other level, it should teach you a little something. It should provoke you to uh, uh, think a little bit. And I think that comes from my TV background, Georgine. Mm-hmm. You know, all those years at Good Morning America, 14 years, I had to do segments about science for a morning national, you know, nationwide audience. Um, and so I had to learn, how do I tell a story where the viewer will invest, you know, maybe, what, three minutes, four minutes of their time to watch my take spot? where they will feel as if it was a wise investment of their three mm-hmm. or four minutes. And yeah. they'll come away thinking, wow, I didn't know that. Wow. And so they start their day with a you know fresh little piece of trivia that they can go share with their coworkers or with their family. But at the same time, be entertained. You know, just feel like, okay, I got a good ride out of this. And uh, so that's what I tried to, that's the kind of style I tried to bring to the Null Prophecy. Well, you certainly succeeded, and I appreciate your emphasis on the intersection of faith and technology, faith and science. I think there's a great deal to be uh, gleaned from it, as well as a great deal of entertainment in it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Georgine. God bless you and your listeners. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Again, the book is titled The Null Prophecy. It's published by Regnery Fiction. Uh, Michael Gillen is the author, the uh, national best-selling author and physicist. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. As promised, today and through the remainder of the week, we're giving away family four packs of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Tickets are now on sale, by the way. The performance is starting on Friday, November the 24th, all the way through Sunday, December the 3rd. That's uh, Friday, November the 24th through um, Sunday, November the 26th, resuming on Thursday, November the 30th, and running all the way through December the 3rd with multiple uh, multiple performances on some days. Tickets, as I mentioned, are on sale now and right through the 14th. There are some discounts available, so take advantage of that. But we'd love to give away a family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree right now, and you want to give those to caller number five. And that number to call, 1-800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. I've had the uh, the honor of serving uh, as a soloist with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree for many years, and I tell you, the people that make up the tree, uh, the uh, the conductors, the uh, just everybody associated with it, they're just marvelous, marvelous people who make tremendous sacrifices 
to put on a pageant that is unrivaled in the Portland metro area. So this is a great way to kick off the Christmas season. And uh, we want to help you do that with a family four-pack of tickets to caller number five. And again, that number, 1-800-845-2162. And by the way, we will uh, give away a family four-pack of tickets on uh, Thursday and two on Friday. So there will be future opportunities to win. As well. Later this hour, we're going to talk with um, Nick Loris. He is um, the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Market and Regulatory Reform. We're going to talk about the the so-called leaked uh, draft report on the National Climate Assessment uh, created uh, by government scientists. It was leaked to the media, we were told, on Monday night, but that's not the whole of the story, and we'll uh, bring that to you. Uh, when he joins us later this hour. Also, we're going to talk with Jeremy Schumacher with the Men's Roundup at Camp Tadmore coming up in September. We'll give you all the important details. It's an event for uh, for guys, and it, I'm telling you, it's a guys' event. The food alone is um, spectacular, but there's so much more. We'll talk more about that uh, when he joins us a bit later. Well, you may have heard that FBI agents raided the Virginia home of Paul Manafort. The name sort of rings a bell. It's because he's he was President Trump's former campaign chairman in late July. They took documents and other materials related to the investigation into Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. Now, this would be a criminal investigation. We know that a grand jury was seated. Uh, they alone can um, issue subpoenas, and apparently that's what they have done. FBI agents executed a search warrant at one of uh, Mr. Manafort's residences, according to a spokesman for Mr. Manafort. Uh, Jason Maloney, he confirmed, Mr. Manafort has consistently cooperated with law enforcement and other uh, serious inquiries and did so on this occasion as well. The Washington Post first reported the early morning raid. With special counsel Robert Mueller has turned up the heat on Manafort. Uh, armed with a search warrant, federal agents went to Manafort's Alexandria home during the pre-dawn hours on July the 26th, one day after he met voluntarily with the members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The search warrant seemed to indicate that investigators may have had reason to believe Manafort could not be trusted to turn over all the records requested in response to the grand jury subpoena. The Post reported, citing people familiar with the special counsel investigation, who probably should not have spoken. But special counsel Robert Mueller has uh, cranked up the intensity and legal pressure on Manafort on a series of unrelated investigations into various aspects of his personal and professional life. As a lobbyist and political consultant in the 80s, he worked with international clients, including two dictators. President Trump has tried to distance himself from Manafort, who served as his campaign manager for a few weeks, though the relationship between the two goes back years. On March the 29th of last year, the Trump campaign announced it brought the veteran political strategist on board to help then-candidate Trump secure enough delegates at the Republican National Convention in July. Manafort, uh, Manafort rather, resigned as Trump's campaign manager in August of 2016, brought on board in July, resigned in August, and amid questions regarding his business dealings in Ukraine. Well, the special counsel has taken over a criminal investigation into Manafort's financial dealings, which began even before the 2016 election. Manafort had been the subject of multiple investigations into his financial dealings and lobbying work. He has denied any colluding with Russia. Well, in June, Manafort officially registered as a foreign agent for the work he did with the Ukrainian political party from 2012 to 2014. So far, Trump's presidential campaign, his son, Donald Trump Jr. and Manafort have uh, turned over 20,000 pages of documents to be uh, to the Senate Judiciary Committee as part of that panel's uh, in-depth probe into election meddling by Moscow. Committee spokesman George Hartman said Manafort provided 400 pages on the 2nd of August 
Two days later, the president's son handed over 250 pages. The committee had set an August 2nd deadline. The committee asked for all records related to obtaining information on Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton from the Russian government or people related to it, uh, including the June 16 meeting between Manafort, Trump Jr., um, and uh, Trump advisor, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and Russian lawyer Natalia something. I'm not going to mispronounce her name with a straight face. In any event, uh, moving forward with what appears to be a criminal investigation unrelated specifically to his stint as the uh, campaign manager or advisor to the Trump campaign over a period of weeks. But, of course, that's some speculation as uh, we don't know specifically what's being looked for. Meanwhile, speaking at a Rotary Club gathering in Kentucky on Monday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell vented about how President Donald Trump's lack of political experience has led to him setting excessive expectations for legislative priorities. I have to tell you, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I think a lot of uh, people who supported Republicans in general or Donald Trump in particular were looking for great things from a Republican-controlled Congress and White House, given the fact that there were seven years of complaining about the previous administration. So it wasn't just expectations set by the president, although I know what he's talking about. McConnell uh, told a group in Florence that uh, he found it extremely irritating that Congress has earned the reputation of not accomplishing anything. I think he's not the only one irritated. Part of the reason he went on to say, I think that the storyline is that we haven't done much is because, in part, the president and others have set these early timelines about things to be done by a certain point. McConnell said um, he was... um, Uh, Speaking at the Rotary event, Trump, a political newcomer, as McConnell pointed out, has a habit of declaring progress on major priorities that do not necessarily reflect the reality of lawmaking. And that certainly is a true statement. For example, as the House was in the midst of negotiations about its Obamacare replacement bill in February, the president announced that Congress was in its final stages of the bill and said it would be ready for submitting in March. While the House bill was unveiled in March, that chamber didn't vote until May, and health care votes uh, continued until the end of July. Well, that sort of disconnect has led Trump's expressing disappointment when bills, chief among them health care reform, failed to end up on his desk, even though, as with health care, the political reality indicated all along how difficult it was going to be to pass the legislation. Our new president, of course, McConnell went on to say, has not been in this line of work before, and I think he had excessive expectations about how quickly things um, would happen in the democratic process. So part of the reason I think people feel we're underperforming is because too many artificial deadlines unrelated to the reality of the complexity of legislating may not have been fully understood. Well, he urged the audience to judge this Congress when it finishes or after the 115th Congress, which convenes on the 3rd of um, January 2017, completes its two-year session. For comparison, he noted that President Barack Obama didn't sign his signature Affordable Care Act into law until March of 2010, more than a year after taking office. The White House has not yet responded to ABC News' request for comment. My guess is there will be one. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk with uh, Nick Loris. He's uh, the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy. We'll talk about a piece that appeared in The New York Times alleging that it was uh, leaked information that the Trump administration was going to withhold from the public. What they failed to mention or perhaps failed to appreciate was that it had been public uh, since January of, uh, of this year. Anyway, more on that in a bit. And we'll talk with Jeremy Schumacher. Men's Roundup is coming up in September. You ought to be there if you're a man, of course. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a draft government climate assessment the New York Times obtained and claims is not yet public has actually been available online since January. That's according to scientists who actually worked on the report. Well, the Times reportedly obtained a draft copy of the upcoming National Climate Assessment, quoting unnamed scientists who feared the Trump administration could change or suppress the report. Well, the New York Times also reported that global warming skeptics were equally worried that the draft report, as well as the larger national climate assessment, will be publicly released. Well, what's the truth behind the story? And was this breaking news or essentially old news? Well, here to join us to talk about that is Nick Loris. He's the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the New York Times, the paper of note, apparently broke a story that's been hanging around since January. (laughs) Give us a little background. Yeah, that's right. You know, this report has been in several draft stages, and what the New York Times uh, recovered was effectively the third draft, and they had to issue a correction uh, to their story. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal one way or another. Um, honestly, this national climate assessment was going to come out. Uh, it's with the White House now, and they have uh, a couple more weeks to look through the draft uh, to make any edits before the final release comes out. And the reality is the Trump administration can't legally suppress the document. I mean, it's part of a, a Federal Advisory Committee Act law uh, that prohibits uh, the Trump administration uh, from uh, suppressing this uh, this document. So by law, we were going to see it one way or another. And really, the, the, the meat of the report wasn't all that surprising either. So what was the point the New York Times was saying, that it's important for us to make sure this information is made available because otherwise the administration is going to pre- prevent you from having access to it? Was that the point they were attempting to make? Yeah, I don't want to speculate on the motive behind the New York Times uh, obtaining this and releasing it, uh, though I do question, you know, why they did it given that, you know, they hadn't done that in the past. I know they, you know, newspapers, you know, by their trade, they like to pick up scoops. But uh, again, it, it feeds into this narrative that the Trump administration is rejecting sound science. Um, it, it feeds into this notion that we need to have a march for science and that, you know, because climate change is real, the Trump administration is somehow denying that fact, uh, when this really isn't the case. I mean, it, we're simply going through the standard procedures, and the Trump administration hasn't suppressed anything, nor are they legally allowed to. So uh, I believe it's, uh, again, kind of feeding into this narrative of an anti-science administration uh, when the facts don't really bear that out. So was this an example of just really bad reporting? Is it likely that they simply were unaware of the fact that this is information that in the normal course of events would have been and was made available and will continue to be available until the final report is ultimately released? Um, or is it is it reasonable to suspect that they uh, were trying to um, uh, to feed the narrative that you referenced a moment ago? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. Uh, honestly, I think the reporter probably didn't realize that the uh, didn't realize that the report was out there. Obviously, um, and uh, the reason it was out there uh, for so long was for the public to see it. Uh, mm-hmm. The reality is, you know, in the draft stages of a lot of these reports, they just don't get that much fanfare. And even when they are published, I mean, the Obama administration has released 
several iterations of this report in the past, and, and they make, you know, headlines for a day or two, but uh, that's pretty much it. And it just, you know, people weren't looking at it. And so I think it was, you know, in some senses an honest mistake, but also in some senses, you know, fear-mongering a little bit about uh, this administration's uh, ability to um, stray away from what the Obama administration was doing. But I think that's more of a policy question than a science question. It was looking at the climate change regulations uh, and recognizing that they would come with significantly high compliance costs and really would be devoid of any meaningful environmental benefit. And unfortunately, the words of folks like administrator, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt uh, or Department of Energy Secretary Rick Perry get twisted around to say things that uh, they're, they're actually not saying. I mean, these folks are acknowledging that climate change is real and that man-made emissions are playing a part. Uh, but for some reason, any statement they make uh, gets twisted to call them you know, science deniers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the scientists who's an atmospheric uh, scientist, Ryan, I think his name is Maui, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, asked the question in a tweet, why purposely politicize the process? This could be a disastrous, unforced error if current above board process is short circuited by activists expressing a concern about, you know, politicizing this kind of process and the information that's produced at the uh, at the end. Uh, tell, talk a little bit about the report itself. Uh, we're talking about the National Climate Assessment uh, what is it? Who's responsible for putting it together and what's its purpose? Yeah, and I do think that's part of the problem, just broadly speaking, with science and the U.S. policy is the politicization of science, uh, really on both sides of the aisle. But this National Climate Assessment Report uh, is, is put together by uh, a number of climatologists with a, a number of different federal agencies. Um, everyone, you know, from NASA uh, to, to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, diving into the issues of um, climate change, uh, of extreme and frequent uh, weather events, um, what man-made impact is on uh, global temperatures, things like that. And a lot of it actually was saying uh, what uh, a lot of the global warming skeptics or, you know, they call themselves lukewarmers have been saying. There's a a climatologist, Roger Pelkey Jr., who studies uh, trends in extreme weather events. And this report, and it's a government report, says that there's not trends for hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, um, floods, uh, all of these things that I think some of the lukewarmer climatologists have been saying for years that we're not seeing more frequent and intense natural disasters. Uh, that's all in this report. And I think one of the concerns isn't the, the, the notion that climates are changing. I think there's evidence to support that historically, but the alarmism that often goes along with it. Now, this report, is there money tied to it? Do agencies then determine where their budgets are going to be set, how they move in one direction or another? How important is it? Uh, you know, they always say follow the money. How important is it to funding that ultimately results in uh, public policy and, and all of that. Yeah, I do think that's a, a pretty big part of it. I don't know how much money specifically is tied to the agencies with regard to this report, but it, I think it does uh, create the narrative that you are predetermining outcomes of government-funded science to meet certain political objectives rather than having an objective, transparent, scientific debate. And I think that's one thing that Administrator Scott Pruitt of the EPA has talked about, and it was something that came from a recommendation of a, a senior 
science official during the Obama administration, Steve Coonan, who suggested having a, a climate red team go in and analyze reports like this and, and you know, the mainstream science and see what they agree with and what they disagree with. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for Administrator Pruitt in the White House to introduce uh, a red team to this report. There's a lot of climatologists, even former intergovernmental panel on climate change climatologists like Judith Curry. Um, you know, there's a, a, a number of prominent ones here in the United States who would love to, I think, dig into this report and offer um, either, you know, some support for what's being said or, um, or rebut some of the things that are being said. And I think there's an opportunity to to do that moving forward. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that the New York Times has now issued a retraction. Did they take responsibility for failing to appreciate the process that this report was uh, was in? And what what was their tack in responding to the mistake that they clearly had made? Yeah, not too much. From what I understood in looking at the retraction, and I haven't looked at it since uh, yesterday afternoon, as they just made it clear that this report was available, and I think they tried to make some correction that they were going after the fifth draft when what was publicly available was the third draft. Uh, although at this point, you know, not all that much uh, I think changes from the third draft to the f- fifth draft. So, in some senses, it was a, a weak uh, correction, uh, especially for you know folks who want to trust the scientific process. Uh, and want to you know, see that all the way through without leaks, um, especially for uh, alleged purposes that this administration uh, is somehow dissenting uh, from what climatologists or you know what you know, science is ultimately saying, and building up this narrative uh, that I think is patently untrue. Well, I appreciate your helping to clarify, and we'll uh, wait for the final report and see what happens next. Nick Loris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Nick Loris is the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. Up next, we're going to talk with Jeremy Schumacher. We're going to talk about the Men's Roundup. It's coming up in September. We want to make sure you have all the important details. And in fact, we have a giveaway connected with that event. So stick around. More to come right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to let you know, and in fact, we're trying to reach Jeremy Schumacher uh, to talk with us about the Men's Roundup. But this is a great opportunity uh, for men to come together around their faith. Men's Roundup is a Christian men's camping retreat. It's a conference, and it's held in the beautiful forested mountaintop setting of Camp Tadmore in Lebanon, Oregon, where men are encouraged to believe, to obey, to connect, and to lead. The Roundup features an inspiring primary speaker, well-known guest artists and musicians. We'll tell you more about them in just a few moments. There's biblical teachers leading action workshop breakout sessions, great food. And let me emphasize great food. We're talking steaks here, gentlemen. And opportunities for guys to worship, to learn, to grow and connect with one another. Now, Roundup is also a wonderful opportunity to appreciate God's beautiful creation, to hang out with friends and break a sweat in the round race, uh, Roundup race or other sports competitions and outdoor recreational activities. Men's Roundup begins on September the 8th, runs through September the 10th. And here to talk with us about that is Jeremy Schumacher. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to uh, let uh, our listeners know, the men who are listening, that Men's Roundup is coming up. Tell us a little bit about this great uh, opportunity for men to come together around their faith, to enjoy one another, to get some great te- teaching, to be inspired, and, and, uh, and to, uh, to grow in their faith. Yeah, Men's Roundup has uh, been gathering men together from all over the Northwest for over 50 years. Wow. At Camp Cadmore here. And uh, we're expecting over 1,800 guys this year to join and be at the mountain. So it's got some real staying power. And uh, everything that gets put together for Roundup is really intended to support the men and the churches that are there. As they're trying to reach out to men in their own unique context, this one weekend really supports everything that they're trying to do throughout the year. Well, what you're describing is a life-changing adventure. Now, this year, John Lynch is going to be the teacher on Jesus giving perspective on what God doing in uh, in men's lives. Tell us a little bit about John Lynch. Yeah, John has been a, a friend of our uh, team for a long time here and done a number of trainings, and he brings a incredible ability to communicate the Word of God in a way that is... Um, I think gets at the heart of the transforming power of grace and the gospel and just draws you into the feelings that you have, uh, but can't always put your, your finger on. I mean, he's a comedian. John's a comedian. He's hilarious <laughs> to listen to. And, and one of the great things about a comedian is they see the normal things of life in a kind of an upside-down way that just gives you a different perspective. And so he's going to help us see from the Word of God the way Jesus has a perspective on our life. And, and actually empowers us to live differently because of grace and because we can actually be known. We don't have to fake. We don't have to pose, um, try better, do more. You know, it really is something that is a, a message of freedom, and I want every guy to come and, and, and be a part of that. Yeah. Now, I know music is an important part of the uh, Men's Roundup as well. Josh uh, Wilson and Jason Gray are going to be there along with Portland-based Beautiful Eulogy. So there's time for, for worship uh, among the men as well. There is, and it's, uh, you know, Men's Roundup is a multi-generational event, so we have guys from high school age all the way up, and and the musical artists are one of those places where you get to express that style, and and, and you can see by that lineup just both the quality of musicality and as well as the depth of um, lyrics and theology that's going to be presented. It's an incredible way to engage art to our heart. It's it's going to be an incredible weekend. Now, um, for those who have never been to Camp Tadmore, paint a picture of uh, what this uh, this space is about, because it, it really is an incredible opportunity for men to exert themselves physically and also to develop themselves spiritually. Talk a little bit about the campus and some of the activities uh, men can engage in. Tadmore is up in the, nestled in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. We have no neighbors except for big giant trees. We got hundreds of acres up there, and guys bring their their tents, their trailers. We have cabin spaces. We have yurts. We got we fill up the ground, and there's we have a private lake that uh, has fishing in it. We've got stand-up paddle boards and and uh, a shooting range. We're introducing uh, shotgun shooting this year. We've got high ropes course, all kinds of environments that are really 
set up for uh, the men that are there to have a, a, a experience together that reinforces the teaching points and and values that we have. You know, paintball course and uh, canoeing, uh, all kind all kinds of things that guys will be able to tap in and do there. Plus competition. You know, groups that get to work together, play volleyball, horseshoes, the roundup race, which is like a tough mudder kind of race, and, <laughs> and it's it's an incredible. It's actually fun to watch, really fun to watch, and painful to do. What a great activity. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can't uh, let you go without t- commenting on the food. I've been to Camp Tadmore. The food is incredible. And the men's roundup, uh, people are not going to be on a diet when they're, <laughs> when they're there. <laughs> no, you're going to get plenty of nourishment for everything you want to do during that weekend. Steak, chicken, the meat, uh, you know, and, and actually dining together. We kind of think of it as a feast. It's a weekend of feasting together. And that's a picture of what we're going to get to do in eternity. And we want people to actually get a taste of that now. Absolutely. Now, I would encourage uh, folks to go to your website, mensroundup.com, and all the important details are there. We're going to be giving away in just a moment uh, the registration for um, meals and some uh, awesome men's roundup gear for the full weekend. Um, But for those who would like to find out more and uh, secure their spot, secure a location, whether it's in a yurt or a tent or (laughs) however they want to spend their time there, you can go to mensroundup.com. Is there a number you would encourage them to, to call or is that the best place to go the website's the best place to call but you can call 503-669-1515 if you prefer that way but the website has that on there as well and uh, love to have everyone come out encourage your husbands your pastors um the, your neighbors to go and, and participate and round up. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for encouraging our listeners to do just that. For the wives who are listening, let me encourage you to tell your husbands and for men who are listening, bring a pal and enjoy a great weekend at the 2017 Men's Roundup. Jeremy Schumacher, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Now, as I mentioned, we have two full weekend registrations, including meals, some awesome men's roundup gear that includes uh, a ball cap, mug, T-shirt, copy of the book, The Cure by John Lynch, the uh, the presenting speaker, uh, Bruce McNichol and Bill Thrall, their summit DVD, promotional poster and stocking cap, some pretty uh Pretty cool stuff. And we want to give that away. Again, this is a full uh, two full weekend registrations that includes all of that. Uh, you can call 1-800-845-2162. Callers 1 and 2. Uh, each will receive the full weekend registrations, including meals, some awesome men's roundup gear. 800-845-2162. 1-800-845-2162. And again, we're talking about September the 8th through the 10th uh, at the um, at Camp Tadmore in um, in Lebanon. Now, what are you saying, Clark? Because I'm, I'm looking at my note. You have one. Is it? Yeah. Let's clarify. I'm not hearing you at all. One. Okay. So we, we're giving one pair away, apparently. Looking at what I have here. Anyway, call 1-800-845-2162. Clark will explain it all. Um, And our third caller, 800-845-2162 to the Men's Roundup. A great opportunity for men to come together in fellowship. Again, that website, mensroundup.com, or you can call them at 503-669-1575. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment 
of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, one of the banes of modern life, I'm not sure you can say banes, but a bane of modern life is the whole effort to try to keep up with your passwords. You've got a phone, you might have a tablet, you have a computer. There are all these different devices and programs that require a password, where we've been told how to protect our password. Well, now the headlines are reading that widely used password advice turns out to be wrong. Forget special characters, go with a long phrase. Okay, so it's tough enough trying to keep up with the password and updating it and making sure it's clever enough, but now they're saying (laughs) that the advice that we've been getting, that's not even good. Well, passwords have become the bane of modern life, as I've mentioned, and all of us are struggling to remember dozens of them, and our employers often force us to change them regularly. That certainly is the case here. Now, thanks to a report in the Wall Street Journal, we know who's responsible for our password frustrations. And uh, we have learned to uh, our horror that all of this information, all of this advice, apparently is so unnecessary. Well, in 2003, when Bill Burr was a manager of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, he wrote guidelines for creating safe online passwords. I just took a course last week uh, to help protect all of that kind of information. Well, the paper memorably titled NIST Special Publications 800-800. 63, remember that, became the benchmark. You may not be familiar with the document, but your password um, creation is based on this advice. Well, it uh, it dictated, uh, or it's rather its dictates were followed by the government, by agencies, corporations, universities, and individuals. It was disseminated to people far and wide. Well, Burr recommended creating passwords that were essentially weird nonsense words. Uh, chock full of special characters and occasional capital letters and numbers. He also said people should change their passwords regularly. Really? What? He was wrong, and he now admits it himself. Much of what I did, I now regret, he says. Um, counseling will be available, by the way, after uh, after this report. It wasn't really his fault. At the time, he was mostly flying blind. He had had to rely on common sense as much as technical expertise. Now, 15 years down the road and after major hacks of corporations like LinkedIn and Twitter, computer analysts have the data to determine which kinds of passwords actually work and which ones, quite frankly, don't. And so the National Institutes of Standards and Technology has radically reworked its guidelines. Now, The Wall Street Journal article on the subject is well worth reading, but in case you don't have a subscription, here are a few of the basic takeaways you might want to uh, well, remember if you have space left uh, after all the uh, passwords have crowded in. There's no reason for passwords to expire. Now, that's news to most of us. Your password doesn't become more hackable because it's been in use for more than 180 days. People should only be prompted to change their passwords if there's a reason to believe it's been stolen or their account has been compromised. That's news to me. You don't need to have special characters or numbers in your passwords. They're now advising using them doesn't make it harder for hackers. New recommendations from the National Institute for Standards and Technology call for people to create passwords that are long, easy to remember phrases, but unique. A series of four or five words mashed together, for example. This can be uh, harder for hackers to create, or rather to crack, than a shorter hodgepodge of strange characters. The journal article um, points out that the password correct, let's see, correct horse battery staple is much more difficult for a hacker to crack than T-R-O-U-B-4-D-O-R ampersand three dot... um, Exclamation point. 
So there you go. Pick a few phrases, redo your passwords. Now you'll finally be able to throw away the post-it notes that reminds you of all your passwords that are, of course, vulnerable to being stolen. And uh, you're back to something that apparently they say should be easier for you to remember. Not sure I accept that at this point, but that's the advice we're now being given. Well, if you've been looking out the window at all today, an air pollution advisory that was issued last week has been extended through Friday at about noon as uh, haze from the Northwest wildfires continue to hang over the Portland metro area. Continuing hot weather, wildfire smoke continue to affect our air quality through the end of the week. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality says the advisory has been extended for Portland, Vancouver, Salem and Eugene. It was issued last Wednesday and was initially set to be uh, to end rather on Tuesday night. Well, last week, uh, triple-digit heat smoke made Portland's uh, air quality unhealthy with levels of pollution exceeding those of Beijing. I've been there, and that's bad. Triple-digit temperatures and stubborn smoke from wildfires uh, raging in uh, British Columbia and parts of Oregon are joining forces to make Portland's air quality among the worst in the country, but only for this week. Conditions will not likely be as extreme this week, but the DEQ expects smog and temperatures in the 90s will make air quality levels unhealthy for sensitive groups in the Portland metro area. So if you are in that group, you know what's going on. The DEQ asked motorists to avoid driving and using gas-powered yard equipment or aerosol sprays. Older adults, children, people with asthma and harder lung conditions should limit their time outside, again, according to the DEQ. The Southwest Clean Air Agency, which enforces air quality standards in Southwest Washington, also extended an air quality advisory for all of Southwest Washington. And again, through Friday. So now you know. Well, TriMet here will soon have the authority to ban violent offenders from the transit system for more than six months, and in some cases, permanently. How you enforce that, I don't know, but the agency's governing board approved the new ordinance Today, it will uh, take effect in about 30 days. Under its own code, the agency was historically able to ban riders for more than uh, six for no more than six months. That policy was intended to ensure that transit dependent riders weren't permanently kept from using the public system. The new policy carves out an exception for riders who commit a serious physical offense or pose a threat to TriMet employees or riders. The agency's general manager will have the authority to ban first time offenders for up to a year and impose as much as a lifetime embargo for subsequent offenses. Prohibited riders will be allowed to appeal their their exclusion to the agency once a year. The new policy was prompted largely for the uh, by the case of Jared Walter, known as the TriMet Barber, uh, for his repeated arrests since 2009 for cutting uh, women's hair and doing worse. Uh, he most recently was arrested in May after he was again seen cutting a woman's hair on a bus. Uh, it also comes um, two and a half months after the stabbing of a uh, on the max train in may left uh, leaving two men dead and critically injuring another so if you misbehave on trimet you will no longer be welcomed and that should at least help riders feel a little bit more at ease well tomorrow on the program we're going to talk with dr everett piper he of course is a college professor and the author of the much anticipated book not a daycare the devastating consequences of Abandoning Truth. The book is published by Regnery and uh, Dr. Piper, who's been a guest here a couple of times. He's written some articles that gained uh, national and international attention. We'll talk with him tomorrow on the program about his uh, his book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Also on Friday, all things being equal and no breaking news, uh, we will um, lighten things up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. So hope you can join us for that.
Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.